So today I have my friend Jeremy joining me. And uh, Jeremy recently posted actually two essays uh, about uh, on the website www.aartysana.com, so artisana.com, and uh, both of them revolve around the topic of Buddhism. His essay is titled Buddhist Concepts for Dealing with Challenging Times, and then he has another post that uh, talks about, it's titled The Reincarnation Debate. So the theme for today is really just to talk about um, the themes in the essay Buddhist Concepts for Dealing with Challenging Times. So welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for having me, Sarah. You're very Great welcome. Great intro. <laughs> Thanks. So yeah, why don't you, um, if you wanted to give us a background about what motivated you to write this essay. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, I think one of the core ideas of, of Buddhism, going all the way back to the, the beginning and the early stories, is uh, how to handle suffering. Right, so the idea, uh, one of the central ideas in Buddhist philosophy is that um, all suffering can be dealt with if you have the right mindset. And all suffering is somewhat of, uh, of an illusion or, or is not something that you should become too worked up with. Mm -hmm. This is something that I've known for, for a long time about the idea that, uh, you know, in, in my life personally, I've been able to alleviate a lot of suffering by, by studying these philosophies. So in, obviously in mid-March, uh, most of the world uh, changed a lot, right? People were losing their jobs. Um, many people were losing their lives. There was this whole fear and, and the pandemic sort of gripped us and, and obviously the world was consumed by, by a lot of suffering mm -hmm. very quickly and it, it was very intense. So around mid to late March, I felt like, you know, I knew how to deal with the suffering of the pandemic. It was easy for me because I understood these concepts, but I felt like a lot of people couldn't deal with the suffering or didn't know how to deal with the suffering. So I had the idea of why don't I try to distill um, Buddhist ideas in sort of an easy to understand way that also kind of covers a broad section of the philosophy to help um, a lay person with no background in, in the philosophy at all to sort of read it and find better ways to deal with their suffering or understand the suffering caused by the pandemic or, or anything for that matter to in a more productive way. And I was really happy to read it when you did share the essay the first time. And I thought how timely um, for you to write such a piece. And, and I'm, I'm one of those people that I don't, I don't know anything about Buddhism. Um, from other than the cliches that we all know <laughs> about, uh, I don't know, 
words that come up in my mind, like Zen and someone who's just meditative and mindfulness. Um, my first, I think the only background I have in anything close to describing Buddhist concepts is when I read the book, The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And um, he takes a lot from Buddhist concepts. So when I was reading your essay, I, it reminded me a lot of the the ideas that I, I, I read. If you can walk us through, like the first thing that you talk about, you t- talk about three concepts, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So the um, first one being um, impermanence. Um, kind of the, the Buddhist understanding of the world or, or the universe, I should say, is that everything is very cyclical and everything is very um, transient. So transient kind of means that everything kind of comes and goes. Mm -hmm. So like, that's kind of how like the Buddha himself apparently told his disciples that this was like one of the most important things that people have to understand is that everything is constantly in flux. Everything is coming and, and going all the time. Everything, everything we can think of is, is going to be born and then it's going to die. So that's that's very important. Uh, can I in can I can I interject? I just wanted to well, as you're talking about like this constant flux. So it's it's an important concept. I just have a question. Does that mean that you know changes and transition we're in, we're in constant change? Because I know here in the West when we talk about change and transition, it's a big stressor, and we use it to describe major life events. Is it because we're so removed from the idea that it's actually part of the everyday fabric or or is is there a difference or, is, or are they the same well that's a great question I, I think like it's exactly what it means it means that change is constant everything is in flux the reason why people have a negative connotation about change sometimes is because a lot of times change means like things that you enjoy going away like when you're a child, your life is great. Your life is simple. You have no responsibilities. Mm -hmm. As you get older and things change, obviously things get harder. You have more responsibilities. You have to look after yourself. So like change does have a negative connotation, but I think that's, that's a conditioning that we have Mm -hmm. that, that sort of teaches us that we should, that we should try not to accept change. But Change is one of the fundamental realities that Buddha taught from, from very early on in the philosophy is that change is, is one of the fundamental fabrics of life. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I bring up impermanence in my essay is because of sort of the two-sided coin of why when you um, fail to realize that change is constantly happening, you suffer either the good things that you want to last forever go away or you just can't imagine the bad things happening now ever being gone. Mm -hmm. So so those two perspectives can help you deal with a lot of pain. Like a lot of times we wish that things were just like what they were before, you know, like when I was in university, you know, I would just hang out. I would go out on weeknights and everything was great. And I didn't have to stress about everything. And we've heard now, that in high school as well. <laughs> Back yeah, in high, high school. school or yeah. <laughs> whatever. I mean, my high school kind of sucked, but <laughs> I'm sorry. Every person has their own 
time in their life that they miss, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Things could be like that again. Yeah. Get nostalgic. But, um, you know, it's everything changes. And then on the other hand, too, there's also, there's things that we have right now that bring us joy. And when those things are threatened, that can be terrifying, depending on what those things are. But it could be things like, um, you know, the value of your house or maybe even like a nice diamond watch that you have or something. Or your job. But all these, I'm sorry? Or your job, right? Your job, yeah, everything. Everything is in flux, but we don't want them to be because it means that things that we enjoy will be taken away. Mm -hmm. So the thing, like a lot of, when a lot of people think about Buddhist monks, right? They think about people who deprive themselves of a lot of material pleasures. Like the, the monastic life typically involves just sitting in a monastery all day, meditating. They don't have toys. They don't have movies. They don't have all these things that we have that entertain us. Mm -hmm. And the reason why the philosophy kind of went down that route is because they believed that all these positive experiences cause attachment. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is that everything is constantly in change. So my interpretation of the philosophy is that depriving yourself of any enjoyment like especially in Thailand, a lot of these monks they have they don't even have shoes. They their only possession is their robe and a bowl that they use to eat rice, which is pretty much the only food that they will eat. Hmm. So, but I don't think that I don't think you have to deprive yourself of material joys mm -hmm. to uh, really benefit from the philosophy. If you can just see your material joys for what they are right now. Mm -hmm. enjoy them but still understand that everything is in flux everything is coming and going all the time mm -hmm. so when you're when these things go away you have to accept that because it you try to fight it you're fighting against a fundamental force of of nature right and to mm -hmm. to just to limit that attachment or to realize that it, I, it as you said the impermanence of everything around you so um, and I, that's, that's, that's interesting that you brought up the fact how, um, how these monks limit their material possessions. And, and obviously that's one end of the spectrum, but one doesn't have to go to those, that, those lengths. And we have a very stereotypical view of what, what it means to embrace impermanence. Like I would picture, or people would picture a, a minimalist apartment or with nothing in it, or, or then I think we're just so used to labeling and putting and or speaking in absolutes that we forget the gray area or and as you put it right like you don't have to deprive yourself of anything as long as you understand the need to not attach to something in a way that will cause misery and a lot of suffering if you lose it exactly yeah. exactly but there there is a slippery slope like attachment uh so the two pillars of of buddhist understanding are non-attachment and compassion if either of those two things become out of balance you have problems if you have too much non-attachment but no compassion you can become very apathetic and you can just be kind of miserable and cruel because you don't care about anyone you know that nothing lasts forever and we're all gonna die so nothing matters 
So that's the other hand. And then if you have too much compassion mm -hmm. without any non-attachment, you can become like a, an empath and you can like, you can just be stressed all the time because there's so many problems in the world that, that you're just too compassionate, but you can't unattach from the fact that all the pain that's happening is going to be gone. So the idea is to have those two skills fairly even then, like a moderate level of compassion and a moderate level of attachment? Um, I don't know if skills is the right way of looking at it. I think I would just call it like understandings. Mm -hmm. is, I mean, and, it, and it's about being moderate in either of them. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's about maximizing both of them. You shouldn't try to moderate your compassion and you shouldn't try to moderate your non-attachment because mm -hmm. like the more you have of those things um, in tandem, the better off you'll be. Okay. Okay. I didn't under, I didn't realize that, that those were two, those were kind of interrelated concepts, compassion and the non-attachment. So that's, that's quite interesting. And that I guess, well, what level are you then? What's the ideal? Like, what what's? Can you describe a scenario where you, where one, is uh, I don't know, has a good balance of both? And I think would that lead to the second second one or no? Like, no, Nirvana would be something different. I'm, I'm thinking. Yeah, but the third one that we'll get to later, I think, has more to do with. With compassion but okay. so a good example is I mean especially during the pandemic right like mm -hmm. um, obviously we need to be compassionate for the suffering that others can go through mm -hmm. maybe if it's people that are elderly or people with underlying health problems um, we should be you know careful we should understand that there is a lot of suffering caused by the pandemic but at the same time if somebody is overcharged with compassion and they're reading the news all the time, they're going to be extremely stressed out because there's just everywhere you look, there's more debt and suffering and, and economic hardship. Mm -hmm. Then it's just like, you can't, it'll just drive you crazy. Yeah. So if you can just like have some non-attachment and understand the transient nature of the pandemic itself, like the fact that it's going to go away, Mm -hmm. like regardless every other epidemic in history has come and gone like mm -hmm. there's no exception to that the idea is that you're you're balancing your compassion for for others to understand the seriousness of the suffering caused by others and and trying to support businesses and and uh you know try to make sure that the elderly are protected mm -hmm. and then at the same time not driving yourself insane reading the news and going crazy about all the suffering that's going on. So speaking of reading the news and going crazy about all the suffering that's going on, in mm -hmm. addition to COVID, and 2020 has been such an interesting year, we have this uh, civil rights movement, right, that sparked out of uh, um, a few incidents in the, in the States with our neighbors. And now I'm thinking, I know a lot of people that are really high on the, the, the compassion scale, and they're very very um, aware of all the events that are going on and constantly sharing them on social media and i identify as an empath i have a 
I think I need to tone down my compassion a little. So as a result, I, I do try to stay away from social media. But but how do you how do you deal with then or, or come to grips with the transient nature of, I suppose, racism? But because things like that never really go away. But it, it, if you're like a millennial or someone in this generation that's using social media a lot, that's constantly getting bombarded by people reporting all these deaths around you. And that really gets to me. So personally, I, I struggle with that. And that's one of the big reasons why I keep away from uh, social media a lot. Yeah. So one thing you, you said you, you want to moderate your compassion. But again, that's, you really should not be doing that. You're not okay. trying to moderate your compassion. <laughs> right. You should try to increase your compassion. You okay. just need more non-attachment. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Like, I'm going to, I'll remember that. You said that before. Yeah. And I forgot. No, no, it, it and makes I said sense. It again. People think, yeah. people are like, oh my gosh, like there's so much craziness. I need to not worry about the problems of other people mm-hmm. it's not that it's that you need to realize that the problems of other people are are transient and they mm-hmm. they come and they will go but that doesn't mean that you should just not care so like right. obviously um you know systemic racism is a big problem in states like and that's something that you know we can all think about trying to solve this problem like we can still use like we, we have a lot of compassion for the problems that, uh, that minorities experience, uh, not only in the U.S., but anywhere in the world because right. of history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and trying to fight those injustices is important. So, um, but at the same time, being so anxious that you can't sleep or just being so enraged that you feel like you have to fight people or, or loot or burn down businesses that's that's the balance so you need to have the compassion that will sort of make you take action where you can Mm -hmm. and then the non-attachment will prevent you from from going for lack of a better word crazy like just being so overwhelmed and you can't sleep and it consumes you and and you just feel like you're not doing enough and and every you're like oh my gosh all these problems and they won't go away so in this case like, then the, sorry in this case the non-attachment is from the actual is that the negativity that you're talking about um it's yeah it's just non-attack like buddhist philosophy from a very early age sort of perceives the universe in a much bigger scale than we can imagine, right? Mm-hmm. Like we can think, oh yeah, like systemic racism wouldn't be transient. But the truth is that like, if you look thousands and millions of years into the future, like it's all gonna, it's all gonna go away eventually. This is just gonna be a little blip in history um, millions of years from now. Mm-hmm. So like when you just think so big, you can sort of be non-attached to these horrible things. But if you're also compassionate, you understand, yes, there are people living right now that are going through problems. So we should figure out ways to sort of fix them. Okay. okay. So yeah, so to, to look back in history and and um, look at the problem relative to, not only I'm, I'm thinking what you said 
on how it would be in the future, but how far we've come in the past from the past as well. Um, that could absolutely, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, like obviously, racism was much much worse in the mm -hmm. United States before slavery was abolished. So yeah, we've still come a long way. That doesn't mean we should celebrate and act like racism is over, but right. that's just another perspective. Right. No, I understand. Um, so I think that brings us, I guess, I'm thinking, looking at the second concept that you talked about. I don't know how to pronounce it. Samsara? Samsara, yes. Samsara. Samsara and Nirvana. I always yes. forget what Samsara is. I, I remember Nirvana because obviously Nirvana, like the band, I mean, that made, <laughs> made us look that up and remember it forever. But what, what's, what's Samsara? Yeah, so they're both Sanskrit words. Um, so Samsara is basically means like the cyclical existence uh, of life, mm -hmm. basically. Um, so it's like the idea of like being born and then you live and then you die and then you're born again and then you live and then you die. It samsara kind of has a negative connotation because samsara is where we experience pain. But samsara is what we're what's happening to us right now. We are in samsara because we're alive. Basically, any life that we see around us is in samsara. Okay. Uh, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really have an English equivalent because obviously Western cultures don't really talk much about reincarnation. Mm -hmm. But um, like for us, life and death, it's, it's very linear, right? As opposed to cyclical. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, samsara has a negative connotation and it has like a very cyclical connotation. So it, it kind of has a connotation of something that keeps happening over and over again. Okay. And, and that's how they see life or death. And then nirvana is kind of, it gets real, when you get really into it, it gets very complicated. There's like different types of nirvana, there's different levels, there's like all these different ways. There's like also like seven different samsaras, like it gets really complicated. <laughs> but samsara or nirvana, sorry, is the idea of what happens when you die and you sort of have the enlightenment to not be, to not return into samsara. So you kind of stay in a place where there is no suffering, there is no pain. So the one of the first things that people learn about Buddhism is something called the Four Noble Truths. That's kind of like, that's kind of like Buddhism 101. Mm -hmm. So the first one is that life is suffering. Life is full of suffering. If you live, you will suffer no matter what. There's nobody that lives without suffering. Mm -hmm. Two is that suffering is caused by craving or desire. So we suffer when we desire for things to be different than how they are. The third truth is that nirvana exists. There is such a state that there is no suffering. And then the fourth noble truth is basically the path of how to get there. Okay, well, the first contrasts quite a lot with the third, no? Um, yeah, they're, they're meant to be kind of parallel, right? One, right. there is suffering. Right. Two, this is what causes suffering. Right. Three, there exists 
a place, if you will, where there is no suffering and mm -hmm. four is how you get there. Okay. Okay. I see. I see. Um, and I guess, will that be the, I, I don't know, the, the Western equivalent to, I, I don't know when I say Western, I'm just maybe alluding to Abrahamic religions, uh, mm -hmm. afterlife with, with, would that be like life on earth versus afterlife? Like life on earth is samsara and afterlife would be nirvana? Yeah, you could, you could think of it as heaven. Like it, it's pretty analogous to something that you would think of as heaven. Mm -hmm. But the reason why they understand it a little bit, like we can sometimes imagine heaven as like a place where it's like, I don't know, it's always sunny out and it's 22 degrees <laughs> and everyone just has martinis all the time and Great you never have to go to the bathroom or like, <laughs> just like this idea of like a worldly Utopia. Perfection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But Nirvana is, they very much has to do with like, you're, you're not experiencing anything. You're not attached to anything. You're just, you're just like being. Mm -hmm. I, guess I mean, it's not nobody has ever described what Nirvana is actually like, but the idea is that it's a place where you don't have all these attachments that we have in life hmm. it's one a place of i suppose enlightenment where one is actually physically removed from their body yep and is not and is not experiencing any craving hmm. or desire that's why like so buddha himself he said that the worst craving of all mm -hmm. is hunger because you have to eat. If you don't eat, you will die. So hunger is the worst suffering of all because it's the one craving that you have to satisfy hmm. or else you'll, you'll die. <laughs> like you'll starve to death. Mm -hmm. That's the idea that you're always going to be suffering in life because eventually you're going to get hungry. It's, it's interesting you brought that up, the, the hunger part. Um, I've been reading a lot about... Um, I mean, obviously my background is in nutrition. So I'm always intrigued by latest diet trends and what health experts and coaches are talking about. And, and one trend that it's not really latest, but it's, it's being talked about a lot is the OMAD. It's one meal a day. It's when people just eat once and that's it. They just forget about it. Um, and people are, are, you know, people that support OMAD are saying it's just so liberating because sometimes I'm thinking like people think that, oh, I need to eat five meals a day or I need to eat three times as opposed to just listening to your body and eating when you're hungry. So I do feel like here we, I don't know, I'm, I'm veering off topic. I just wanted to, it was very timely that you brought up um, this, this hunger issue and how the food industry in itself is a business. And I'm just, I'm currently going through a transformation where I'm thinking, well, the way we view food and the way we have to eat is, is not always the same or it's, it's quite. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you bring up the food industry because I think that a lot of, you know, businesses, they benefit by creating desire, mm -hmm. right? Like that's what right. advertising is. That's what a lot right. of big businesses want to do. They create desire. Right. And that desire in itself creates a suffering for people that they didn't even know that they had, that mm. they think will go away if they buy a product. The idea that Buddhism teaches is that it's not the lack of the thing that makes you suffer. It's the desire for it. I mm. mean, 
like, you know, little kids, like I could say like no kid wants an Xbox unless their friends have Xboxes. Like a kid might suffer because they don't have an Xbox if all their friends have an Xbox, but they don't even know what an Xbox is. They're not going to suffer because they don't have an Xbox. They don't care. They don't even know what an Xbox is. And in a world where we're constantly bombarded with advertisements, uh, even on the stairs (laughs) in between the steps, how do we manage that desire? How do we, how do we manage the, the fact that, you know, I don't, I don't need something for me to be happy because you hit the nail on the head with advertising. I even asked you, I was like, are you in advertising? Like it's, it's creating. <laughs> I am. Okay. Okay. There you go. Okay. I'm remembering a line from, from Mad Men where Don Draper is saying, uh, describing, I think, what is he saying? Like it's happiness or what are we selling? We're selling happiness. Um, and he's describing all these desirable image or imagery and, and so forth. So that, that really reminded me of that. But, but in a world where we're con- constantly bombarded with so much, uh, you know, in quotations, desire, right? Um, how do we, how, how can one manage to abide by this very principle to minimize it? Um, I think it comes down to, I think it comes down to practice. I think a lot of it is being able to generate your own happiness mm-hmm. through like, meditation or, or even simple things like, I don't know, watching a sunset or even hanging out with your friends or, or a hug. Um, so learning to appreciate simple things mm-hmm. uh, can make it much easier to be happy because simple things are a lot easier to achieve than uh, sort of more abstract things that cost money. Yeah, and cheaper, easier and cheaper. Yeah, it is. Yeah, good advice. Good advice. Thank you. So, how it comes to dealing with suffering? So, the idea is that when you die, you will, you will either have samsara again, mm-hmm. or you will go to nirvana. So, and even though samsara is supposed to be a bad outcome in the philosophy, uh, it's not really that bad because we're here right now. Like, it's hard sometimes, but it's not that bad. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we still enjoy ourselves sometimes. Like, yeah. <laughs> not the worst thing. So the idea is that if you think that after death, you will either have samsara or nirvana, death is not something that is so scary. Either your own death or the death of others. So that's, I think, really key, especially with the pandemic. A lot of people are terrified of of all the death that's happening mm-hmm. and all of the, you know, all the, the suffering that people are going through, like people in nursing homes who are who are suffering so much before they die, or people who don't get to say goodbye to their loved ones and, and all these things that are very sad. But if you can think of samsara and nirvana as being the outcomes of death rather than just like a sheet of darkness Mm -hmm. uh it it just sort of seems a little bit it doesn't seem as bad you know like if somebody was if you didn't get to say goodbye to you know your grandparent and they were in a you know a, a covid overwhelmed hospital 
and surrounded by coughing people and all that. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, well, instead of that horrible moment and then a sheet of darkness and you're like, wow, that horrible moment. Like I wish they could have died with a glass of champagne in their hand on a beach and just died peacefully. Right. But if you think, okay, well, actually they're, they're not in their body anymore. They're either going to come back as a little baby somewhere or maybe another animal or something abstract, or they will kind of go to this perfect place where there is no suffering. So it's like, oh, that, that doesn't seem so bad. My grandma is now in Nirvana or in heaven. Great. I mean, it's sad that I don't get to hang out with her anymore, but at least she's somewhere. So you're saying in times like these, these where you're surrounded by a lot of suffering, or at least with the pandemic, it's, it's easier to believe. Is, is, that, is that the message there? But then in contrast, how would a... How would you um, explain that to, um, I guess, a happy atheist? A happy atheist wouldn't need to, but then. Uh. I mean, like, uh, I wouldn't say that the pandemic makes it easier to believe these things. But I think a pandemic gives you a reason to think that these beliefs can be helpful. Mm -hmm. a hap now, a happy atheist, uh, this is an interesting point, right? Like. For some people, maybe the, the sheet of darkness that they think happens to you after death is not such a bad thing. Right. It's like, okay, now you're not suffering anymore. Uh, you're just in a sheet of darkness. You're not feeling any more pain. You're just feeling nothing. Right. But the interesting thing is that that darkness, that feeling nothing that you're talking about is actually nirvana. That's exactly what nirvana is. You're not feeling anything anymore. You're not feeling pain, you're not feeling uh, joy, you're not feeling anything, you're not attached to anything. So mm. it's actually, so the darkness that a happy atheist might think happens after death is actually pretty much what, what nirvana is to an extent. Yeah, again, these are very foreign concepts to me. And I know I've heard the somewhat complicated, uh, I know how complicated nirvana can get. I don't know as much as you do, obviously. But uh Thanks for simplifying it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, now leading to the third point. So we've talked so far about impermanence and I can see how that relates to samsara and nirvana because it also talks about the mere impermanence of, of life, right? Or at least uh, if life is cyclical, um, that like here we think there's a beginning and an end and we you know, you stress and you suffer because you, you know that there's changes to that, that we don't want it to end as opposed to thinking it like a continuum. Um, so, yeah. And, and I, I bring up in my essay that, cause one of my friends brought this up. She said, well, some things are permanent because, you know, what if somebody's, you know, sibling dies and they're sad for the rest of their life. But then, like I said, it's a, you're perceiving that impermanent, you're perceiving that permanence from the perspective of one single life. Mm -hmm. Once that life ends, that suffering is gone somewhat. Hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So when you sort of think bigger than one life, then impermanence seems even more true because yeah, we're all going to die. So no matter how much pain we're in, throughout our lives, once we die, all that pain is gone. 
Right. Yeah, I actually had to uh, embrace that earlier on. Um, when I was 19, a very close friend of mine, my cousin, actually, she's my best friend. We grew up together. Uh, we had our birth dates like, you know, two weeks apart, but she, she had a terminal illness. And so she passed away just before her 19th birthday. And I remember this is the first time just before our 19th birthday. And like when I went to the hospital and, and I looked at her body, I saw her like, in this expression that was actually a little just happy. And to me, that shook me because here I was, I was very sad, but I knew she was very ill. And when I saw her, I thought, oh, she looks like she's relieved. Um, and I always try to, and it really, it to me, it helped me a lot with coping because I thought all of that suffering was just gone. And and I know how much pain she she was in her life since she was born. So so yeah, it, it really made me kind of think about what we, what, you know, how we think, well, it's all good in life, but then not everyone's dealt with the same cards. And it's really, if, if I should say to somebody that's, you know, miserable and ill, like, oh, but this life is beautiful. And they're, they, say, they would say, well, no, I, I'm actually suffering a lot and I'd be relieved to go. And that's something that you'll hear older people say very unapologetically to say, no, you know, I've had a good run or like, I'm good. I'm good. I just don't yeah. want to suffer. I, I, I'm, I'm okay with that now. So. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's interesting that you brought that up, that your, your cousin must have been, I would say, pretty emotionally mature to be in that point of near death and being a little bit relieved. I think that shows that uh, she's, she was probably very mature. But l let me ask you this, right? Like if you think of, of, whatever the abstract thing that was inhabiting her body is could be a small child somewhere or a puppy dog or <laughs> or or she's off in in nirvana do you does that make you feel a little bit better um yeah absolutely um it does. It's, uh, I grew up in a very um, conservative culture and the ideas for like there's heaven and hell. And, you know, when you leave your soul just kind of leaves your body and, and you're free, you're, you're in heaven. So at the time I, I was still, I didn't really associate to me. Heaven seemed a bit corny and cheesy. So I, I would think that, okay, her soul's just up in the air. It's just free. And I would just imagine it like, I don't know, being in the universe, just kind of chilling. And that's how... She's up in the uh, sky or something, maybe? Yeah, yeah. That's okay. how I... That would, Yeah, so I, in order for me to get through that that death, I had to just imagine it. It It's actually what you're describing, like to, to not have the connections, to be gone, to let go. So I'm not like waiting for her ghost to appear or anything, but I know that it's that she's freed from all the pain and she's not feeling any of that. She's kind of beyond that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or like if you were to believe that now, like everything is dark and everything that you thought was her is just ended and it's over now. That's a little bit, that's kind of depressing. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I, well, it, yeah, it is. I don't, I don't think that it's ended. I mean, for me, you know, she lives in my mind and she had a lot of ideas and we talked and I very much feel connected to, connected to her. I don't even know how to explain it, but I, I know that much of her life was spent rotating around hospitals after hospitals and surgeries. And so to me, like, I don't, I don't see it as a dark and depressed thing. Like, of course I I wish, or I wonder if she was alive that I, I would see her, but I also knew how full of suffering her life was. Um, and it was just really strange. It's, I, I guess for me, it was her facial expression. She was pretty content with it. And it was very hard to deal with that, to see someone. Because I wanted, in my mind, I imagine her to be like, I don't want to die. I want to do this before I die. I want to have my list of things before I die. But she was just kind of, she just kept saying, yeah, I have these things that I don't, they have no meaning to me. And she would talk more about like family relationships. Because I know my family and her family had a lot of um conflict and she was like the glue so she would tell me the importance of keeping in touch and she had a younger brother and she would say well you know you keep in touch so even her conversation wasn't really revolving around a lot of material things it was more like relationship and harmony and it was really hard as as a as a kid for me I wasn't a kid I guess I was a teenager just exiting my teenage phases but to kind of see that level of maturity um yeah. and everyone around me like I I think for me it was such a shock that I couldn't even cry I couldn't even, and I still to this day I don't think I tear up but I don't I never cried or wailed or anything like that and I think it just gives me some solace to know that um that yeah that that she's kind of in a in a different entity like she's a different entity and that's how I like to for me at least personally I envision life after death is just you're a different entity so for me I guess that would be the nirvana if if I had to yeah totally yeah and another thing that um, Buddhism teaches is that like you're always experiencing right now you're always experiencing the karma of your past actions Mm -hmm. so uh, and then how you deal with the karma affects your future state. So your future um, state in samsara, you mean? Yes, exactly. So a lot of beliefs say that if somebody has an unfortunate life, it's not it's not like that they were being punished. A lot of people think that karma means like if you do something bad, you get punished. If you do something good, you get rewarded. It's not necessarily that. It's that like the things that you do attract the same consequences. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So the belief is that your cousin somehow, you know, had that, uh, she had like a, a lesson to learn or, or maybe like an attachment to let go of that brought about that circumstance. But if she was happy and unattached and it would imply that she essentially resolved it with this life, she, she, all that karma came to her and she played with it very well because she 
she ended very positively and she tried to hold your family together and, and sort of created a lot of happiness around her. Mm-hmm. So uh, at least from my perspective, it would mean that her future states are probably going to be very positive, much more positive because she sort of washed up something bad and turned it into something good, which will mm-hmm. bring more good to her in the future. Hmm. That's a beautiful way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. And makes me think of, I guess, uh, the third concept that we're talking about, like the connectedness. And I, I mentioned that before. Um, and it really sparked something in me. And, and I, I really do. I, li- I really like how you simplified it in your essay uh, or how simplified <laughs> the simple language that you use <laughs> to explain uh, what could be very um, uh, complicated concepts. And this one was really, really beautiful as I read it, the dependent origination one. I hope that everybody looks that up or comes across it or just digs, uh, delves a little deeper into it. Um, Can you explain uh, in your own words what you mean by? Yeah, so so dependent origination is part of a a collection of, of Buddhist ideas about the nature of material things so like we know that material things come and go Mm -hmm. but the dependent origination basically tells us that all material things are interrelated with every other material thing so like i have this i have this cup this is a plastic cup from a and w so i think that there's a cup here that's just a cup that's independent Mm -hmm. but Dependent origination tells me that there are many, many other factors that created this cup. There's the materials, there's the paint, there's, you know, the fast food restaurant that it came from, there's the the purpose that it has, there's what my mind thinks a cup is, there's the person who made the cup, what their mind thinks a cup is. There's like so many different factors that make it so that this cup exists. So this cup is dependent on, on everything else. Does that mean so other people yeah. too? Other people, yeah, absolutely. Other people, other material things. Um, mostly other people, right? Because mm-hmm. especially like, like this cup comes from an idea that a person had that said, okay, somebody wants to put root beer into this cup in a portable way. And then I share that idea. I say, yes, I want root beer in a cup in a portable way. Mm-hmm. But then the yeah so that cup comes from a many other things also history right like in the history people use pottery and then they became cups i don't really know the history of the cup but the point is that the, <laughs> Neither there's do a I. lot of things there's a lot of things that contribute to the existence of this cup right okay and how does that connect to when looking at um allevi- alleviating or reducing your suffering yeah so it it, uh, it kind of goes into like the, like when we talk about non-attachment and compassion earlier on, non-attachment is implied through impermanence mm-hmm. and compassion is applied through dependent origination because dependent origination means that everything is connected. So a lot of people can think, like a very cruel person can think that I can just hurt people for my own benefit mm-hmm. and that doesn't make a difference. Right. Because I'm just benefiting myself. But dependent origination will tell you that you are not independent from any other person. So when you 
hurt somebody for your own benefit, you're still kind of hurting yourself indirectly in the long run, or maybe you're hurting the society that you live in or something. Right. This is the idea that like nothing is independent. You are not independent. So everything is very like connected with everything else. So it means that compassion is very important because you realize that every other thing is a part of the same thing that you are a part of. So that's like, I think this sort of summarizes how Buddhism perceives the world is that everything is very transient and everything is very connected. So it's like mm -hmm. everything is always coming and going and everything is connected to every other thing. And a lot of the suffering that happens is when we perceive separation, um, especially jealousy and things like that. Those are very separate, separate ideas, jealousy, hate, and impermanence when we, when we want things to be permanent or mm -hmm. we think that things are, can be permanent. Those cause a lot of suffering. Hmm. Yeah, it ties down quite beautifully, actually, the, the two concepts that you explained, compassion and um, what was it, non-attachment. Uh, have you ever seen Dirk Gently? <laughs> no. Is that oh, <laughs> uh, no, it's actually, it was a series of books that later got turned into a TV show. And the most recent one featured Elijah Wood. It's like a fiction show. It's a character... Um, it's a detective agency that, uh, but the, his, his method of resolving crime, anything is highlighting the fact that everything is connected. So it's a really fantastic show. If you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend, um, having a look at it. It's, uh, it's, it's very, very, very entertaining. It got, I was just a really, uh, I wasn't happy when I heard it was canceled, but the TV show is called Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency, but I just thought it was super cool how they had like the most absurd and bizarre concept. And it, it was actually really good writing. And in the end to kind of show how connected everything was. So anyway, I just, it, it sounded exactly like that. I'm like pulling pop culture references left, right and center, of course, because that's how. Yeah, no, that, that sounds cool. I that. <laughs> Thanks for explaining the, the three concepts, uh, Jeremy, that was um, a really, um, I think it's, it's really beneficial for, especially in times like these, for us to take a step back and, and, and look at other philosophies. I think if there's any time to do that now is a great time. And certainly for me, it came, um, it was just a coincidence that you decided to share this, uh, share your essay with me. And then I thought, hey, I want to share it with more people. <laughs> and then I'm like, hey, let's talk about this too, because I feel like we need to be talking about these concepts more. Um, you know, just living here in, in, a, in an age where uh, we're so connected with social media and we're sharing the bad news so often. And there's just many themes that I, I feel like I struggle with and I see others struggling with. And I think these concepts could be a great um, primer for anyone that finds themselves being overwhelmed by the things that are happening. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks, Jeremy. Um, for if you wanted to check out more, um, you can find Jeremy's article, uh, Buddhist Concepts for Dealing with Challenging Times, and his other article called The Reincarnation Debate. All are up on the guest feature post 
Uh, you'll see them in the homepage on www.aartysana.com. And you can also catch the podcast on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining and thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you, Sana. It was great.